Well, amen. If you're thankful in the Lord this morning, say amen. Amen. What a great morning of worship it's been already. Uh, We are in week three of our four-week series, Back to the Basics, and we are excited for what the Lord has for us this morning. Uh, Really, we kind of started this message last week. And we began talking about the idea of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue with the Lord's Supper and then add a little uh, new piece to it as well. But this whole series is really about diving back into the basics, the core essentials of the Christian faith. And we began again talking about baptism and Lord's Supper and how they demonstrate our continual abiding in Christ. We looked at John 15 and we talked about what does it mean to abide in Christ. And so if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and check it out um, and then watch that back. We're not going to spend too much time reviewing that this morning. So I want to encourage you to go back, look at that and kind of see where we started for this week. Uh, as we covered the topic of baptism last week, we looked at the vital importance of the command for all believers to be baptized. It is not a suggestion. It is not an encouragement. It is a command that all believers, all followers of Christ are baptized as an evident sign, a public profession of their faith. As well as we talked about last week, not only that it is a command to all believers, but it connects us and brings us closer to the local church. So as we as a local church are baptized individually, and then we watch others follow the Lord and believers baptism, it draws us closer together in connection as we celebrate with those believers. We encourage them, we pray over them, we're excited for them, and we walk with them through their journey in Christ. And so again, baptism is vitally important. We also dove into last week talking about some of the unique core distinctives of our church being a Baptist church. We're not afraid to say that we're a Baptist church because we believe that the Baptist denomination is not tied to how you do church, but what we believe as a church. And so that's why we delve into that last week so you could understand a little bit deeper, not just the core essentials of Christianity, but specifically our church and kind of core things that drive our church. And baptism and the Lord's Supper are vitally important to us as a church. So this morning, we're going to finish up last week's message, speaking to communion or the Lord's Supper and seeing how and understanding how those core doctrines, baptism and the Lord's Supper, fit into the bigger picture of discipleship. So we're talking about how baptism and the Lord's Supper fit together in a bigger picture in discipleship. So you can turn with me in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the seats, we invite you to do so. If you don't have a copy of God's Word for yourself, if you don't have it on your phone or your device or in print, you can grab one of those Bibles in the chairs there. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can just turn to page 694, 694, Matthew chapter 26. And so we're going to look at this idea of communion or the Lord's Supper together and understand how it ties with baptism as well as discipleship as a whole. So Matthew chapter 26, and this is looking at the actual first Lord's Supper, the original communion. We're going to dive into, in just a few moments, 1 Corinthians 11, and see how the Apostle Paul relays communion to the early church. But I want to start here in Matthew chapter 26. 
Now, the passage covers much more. We're just going to look at a couple verses to kind of springboard into this idea of what communion is. But obviously, I encourage you to read all of verses 17 through 35, and you're going to see a bigger context of what's going on here. Um, Also, quickly before I forget, if you'd like to take notes and follow along, you can find that on our app, uh, North Goodland BC in your app store. Go to Media, Sermon Notes, and you'll find the notes from today. Now, last week, if you're like me, I always have to fill in all the blanks on a note page. It's just, it has to be filled in. Even if I don't get it and I make up my own word, it's going to be filled in by the end of church. Like, it just has to, okay? Obviously, we didn't cover all the notes last week. Rather than trying to go back and fit into there, we just made new notes for this week. So it kind of covers the end of last week's notes that we didn't get to, as well as some new content today. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you if you'd like to follow along. Or if you want a copy of my notes, just reach out to me, let me know. I'd be more than willing to just send this to you. If you want a copy of the whole series, we can do that when everything's done and just send you all four weeks. So Matthew chapter 26, look with me in verse 26. And as they were eating, so they're already engaged in the meal, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it. By the way, just a side note here. If you ever wonder why we pray before we eat, it's because we follow the example of Christ. Christ always prayed and then broke the bread. Prayed as thanking the Father for provision and then provided it. Whether it be this moment or the feeding of the 5,000, we see that model. That's why if you've ever wondered, why is it so important that we pray before we eat? Listen, if, and if you grew up in some homes, they told you if you didn't pray before you eat, you got a stomach ache. Any, any parents ever tell their kid that one? Okay, right here. Thank you for your honesty. All the other parents are like, I would never tell my child such a thing. John's like, every time. Every time. And then I tell him, I pray you'll get a stomachache. No, I don't know if he does that. I'm just kidding. Probably shouldn't do that. But this is why we do that, because we see this modeled before us. Is it commanded that we do it? Do we lose our salvation if we don't do it? No, of course not. But we see the example, and we want to praise him for the food that he provides to us. Amen? Uh, Whether we grew it with our own hands or we worked hard, made some money, and bought it from the grocery store, it's all from him. Okay, so we thank him for all of the provisions he gives us. And, and I promise you, if you grow in the habit of praying before you consume your meal, before you purchase something, before you, whatever it is that you experience, you'll understand more thankfulness in those things. So here we see Jesus prayed. He blessed the food, the bread. Then he break it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink you all of it. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This ties us to the author of Hebrews, which tells us that there is no shedding of blood. There is no remission of sins. This is again, tying us also to the Old Testament sacrifice, that when the lamb was sacrificed, when the animal was sacrificed and the blood poured out of the animal, that was symbolically covering the sin of the people. It didn't really do anything for the people physically, but God said, if you do this by faith, Believe God at his word. I will extend grace to you and this will be a covering for your sin. When Jesus says this and he says, this is being shed for many for the remission of sins. He is saying, my blood is being spilled out as a sacrifice. And anyone who receives by faith through grace, the gift of salvation, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, their sins in Christ are not just covered. Amen. They are, John says, taken away. Old Testament sacrifice would cover the sin. 
but it would not take it away. John says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world and casts it as far as the east is from the west. It's a greater sacrifice. It's a purer sacrifice. It's a fuller sacrifice. And again, Hebrews dives into all of that. But that's why we talk about blood of Christ being spilled. And I know in our culture, that's really weird. And if you're here this morning, you're visiting for this time, first time, maybe that's weird to you to hear that, but it's vitally important because it shows us a connection from the way that God worked in the Old Testament to the way that God is working today, that sin requires a sacrifice. Where there is sin, there is death. And all of these are very important to understand in talking about our forgiveness of sin and how we've been set apart for Christ. And so again, Jesus did all that was needed. He says, this bread is my body and this cup is my blood, representing those things and what it's going to do for you in salvation. And so I want to walk through this this morning and see how we can better understand communion. Before we do that, I know Pastor Greg prayed, but let's pray and ask the Lord to affirm his word in our hearts and minds. Father, we're so thankful for all that you provide to us. Lord, not just spiritually as you provide salvation, which is obviously the greatest gift because it meets our greatest need. But Father, more than just salvation, you provide us with so many as your word says, spiritual blessings. And we've received all of them in Christ. The fact that we can pray right now is a gift of salvation, a gift of the gospel. The fact that we can lift our voices and you receive it as, as a sound of praise, as a joyful noise, that's only because of the gospel. Otherwise, it would just be noise. And so thank you for all the many gifts, the provisions you provide spiritually, but also for the physical provisions that you give to us. Father, we want to be thankful in all those things. And so this morning, as we walk through this topic, Lord, of communion and and how it connects to us, how it grows us and strengthens us, how it demonstrates our abiding in Christ and how it ultimately leads us into discipleship, I pray that you give us clarity and wisdom and understanding from you and you alone. Thank you for your word that guides us and directs us because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so grow our faith this morning as we get back to the basics. Help us to grow in a closer walk with you. Father, provide all that we need this morning through the working of your spirit. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has not personally received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that they would realize this morning it's not about going to church. You can never be a good enough good person. You can never do enough good works. It is only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are given eternal life. So I pray that for the one or maybe more that are here today trying to do it themselves, as Pastor Greg said, trying to work it out on their own understanding, I pray they would know that there is grace for them, that you love them so much, that you gave yourself for them. And all they have to do And I say all they have to do, Lord, it's not easy. All we have to do is humble ourselves, admit that we've sinned, repent, turn from that sin, and trust Christ as our Savior. But Lord, that step of humility is difficult for us in our human nature. To admit that we need you and can't do it on our own is a difficult thing. But I pray by your working, you would draw those to repentance that need to be saved. And so, Father, again, thank you for doing all that was necessary that we might come to know you as Savior and for continuing to keep us today in your grace. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we see the Jewish disciples of Jesus. They are Jews by practice, and they are taking part in the Passover. They're taking part in this traditional meal. 
and it's celebrating and memorializing what God has done in the past. And Jesus takes this meal, this moment, and he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper of Communion. He actually changes the emphasis of the meal. He changes the emphasis of the meal. The meaning and the purpose of the Passover is changed. And here's how this happens. Because Jesus, the one who initiated the first Passover, can initiate a change to the Passover. And so now we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper talking about something that God did to Israel way back in the Exodus. No, we celebrate the Lord's Supper because what God is doing and has done in our lives through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the tradition moved from being thankful for earthly deliverance from the Egyptians to praise for eternal deliverance from sin. A tradition that memorialized God's grace and passing over their homes and sparing them to a tradition and a, a ceremony that memorializes, rather, God's grace to remove our sin in Christ and not only spare us hell and condemnation, but grant to us eternal life in heaven. This is what communion represents. And it's in this meal that Jesus says, for, for thousands of years, we've, we've done this meal and we've looked at it this way. Now let me tell you the fullness of this meal. See, all the way back in the Old Testament, we talked about this already, we see God's grace and God's provision to the people of God, to the children of God. And that's exactly what we see here. God's grace and God's provision to the children of God. Only it's taken the form of the sacrifice being Christ, the deliverance being from sin, and the provision being unto eternal life, which we can never earn on our own. And that is why I love when you look back and you see the Passover with the, the blood on the doorpost, the, the sacrificial lamb and the blood allowing God to pass over and see them as righteous. That is exactly what happens when we receive Christ. Our sin is taken from us and placed on Christ. His righteousness, his perfect life is gifted to us. And now all that God sees when he looks at us is the blood of Christ as a son and daughter of God. And we come together around a communion table and we, we honor God for that. Because here's the reality. You could never save yourself. I could never spare my own self and, and pay enough to get into heaven. The only consequence for my sin that I would ever deserve and earn is a place of hell. But oh, the grace of God that he would shed his blood for you and for me. And so communion, this tradition, this Passover meal, and, and I don't know that the disciples were kind of being apathetic with the meal. I don't know that they were just kind of like, oh, another Passover. But if they're like us, which we can read in the rest of Scripture, they're an awful lot like us at times, to their discredit, amen? Maybe to our discredit too, I don't know. But if we're being honest, I got to believe as a follower of Christ, there's been a communion or two where you've just... Let the communion go by. You took the little cracker. Let the drink go by. Took the little cup. Ate the cracker. Mm, that's kind of stale. Drank the juice, right? Like, I mean, because sometimes they sit in the cupboard. Sorry, it happens. We don't try to make it better. But anyway, some of us, I think we've gone through a communion or two where we really didn't pause and honestly honor the name of Christ in that moment where we desperately cried out and praised him for that representation of our sin being taken away through his blood. 
Now, I'm not saying that happens all the time. Maybe that's never happened to you. But our human nature is going to tempt us to allow that to happen where it's just another communion. It's just another Lord's Supper. I can almost imagine when the disciples are eating the meal and they're chit-chatting over the food. And then Jesus stands. He takes the bread. He says, okay, for a long time, this has only meant this to you. Let me tell you now what it represents. And he begins to take the elements of the meal and give them greater meaning and purpose. And so now when we gather for the Lord's Supper, it means so much more than just a meal, than just a time of fellowship. It's so much more than that. So what is the Lord's Supper or communion? So walking this out, the Lord's Supper or communion is a continual expression of our faith. A continual expression of our faith. You see, Jesus used the Passover meal with the disciples to institute what we call the new covenant, this idea of grace, this idea of a covenant of grace to institute what is the church. This meal signifies the beginning of what we call the age of grace or a way in which God interacts with mankind on the solo solo basis of faith and grace. Now, by the way, it's always been faith and grace, but the means at which that was communicated changed. It went from the Old Testament law and sacrifice to the personal work of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the word of God. And he begins to work with us in this different way that now instead of trying to adhere to the law and go to the temple year in and year out and give these sacrifices time and again, as Hebrews again talks about, we now merely call on the name of Christ and we are ushered in by grace into the family of God. And now we have access to the Father that day or night we can call out in Jesus' name and he hears us. And he works in our behalf and he glorifies himself through us. And he does all these great things because of Christ. You see, this is a different way that God begins to interact with mankind. Paul continues this same teaching in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, And we're going to turn to Corinthians in just a little bit. But in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, he tells us that we do show the Lord's death till he come. We show the Lord's death till he come. Every time we gather for communion... We're showing the reality of the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It is a reminder, I believe, to the church that when we practice communion, we are expressing our faith anew. We are showing again and expressing again the foundation of our faith is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And every time we gather around the communion table, we are honoring that and testifying to that and communicating that continual expression of faith. Just as baptism should not be neglected, so should communion not be neglected in the local church. In fact, it is the only act of worship in the New Testament that we have prescribed instructions for. Whereas other expressions of worship are not as clearly defined in practice. Motivation, content, but as far as elements and steps and all that goes into communion, it is defined more clearly than any other thing we do in church. I'll give you an example. The Bible says we should tithe and, and give to the Lord. But when we tithe, how we tithe, and all those things, it's not clearly defined. We know we should sing worship to him. But the musical instruments in the New Testament are not clearly defined. Use this instrument and use this one and don't use that one. Now, we can go to Psalm. And we can see all kinds of different instruments being used. But again, in the New Testament, we don't have a definitive list of approved instruments and not approved instruments. By the way, if you grew up in a church that taught you that, that's not in the Bible. Okay? 
So again, there's not as much clearly defined step-by-step instructions in a lot of things we do in worship. It's the content, it's the motivation of the heart, it's the purpose that's all on display. Obviously, everything we do as a church is to glorify God, not to elevate self. But in communion, we actually see a step-by-step kind of layout to the Church of Corinthians. And it talks about do this, and then you do this, and then you do that. And so it should not be neglected because it is of vital importance. We believe communion is a time of memorial, and we would say with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because when the church gathers, the Spirit is always present. We do not believe the elements, the bread and the cup, literally become the body and the blood of Christ, as some others believe. We believe it is purely in an act of remembrance of what Christ has done for us. So again, it continually expresses our faith in Christ, but also communion demonstrates not only our continued faith, but it also cements our fellowship and unity in Christ. So communion is a continual expression of our faith, but it also cements together our unity and fellowship in Christ. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can turn to page 808, 808. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, this is a very popular passage. This is kind of the communion passage, if you will, for the church. Many, many pastors, myself included, will reference this when we partake in communion. This is that step-by-step kind of giving descriptions of communion to the church. So 1 Corinthians 11, and we're actually going to read a different part of the passage than we normally read. Um, So 17 through 22. And again, page 808, if you're using one of the Bibles provided. So 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22. Thinking as we read this, the purpose of communion is to cement our fellowship and unity in Christ together. It's supposed to bring us closer together. But listen what was happening in the church. Now in this, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. Now in this, Paul writing here, I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. He's speaking about communion and the church was coming together, but he says, I'm not praising you and how you're coming together because when you come together, it's actually for the worse, not the better. Like this is, a, this is causing bad things to happen, not good things to happen. Verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you and I partly believe it. I love that phrase. I don't know if Paul's being sarcastic here, but I read that with just a a hint of sarcasm. I hear there's some divisions. I kind of believe it. Why is Paul saying that? Because earlier in 1 Corinthians, we read about the divisions even among people about whose teacher is best, Apollos or Peter or Paul. He's saying, I kind of believe that this is true, what I'm hearing. Again, it's probably very true. Verse 19. For there must be also heresies among you, false teachings, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So he's saying, the divisions tell me there's false teaching. Do you get that? If there's divisions in the church that are not good divisions. Now, what are good divisions? If somebody is teaching heresy and this group says that's a heresy, there's a division, but that's a good biblical division. There should be division if somebody's trying to cause division or or heresy or infighting. That needs to be called out, and that's okay to identify that. But he's saying this this 
wrong division, this foolishness, this childish division is only going to come from false teaching, false leaders preaching things that are not true. He goes on to say this, verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. These are harsh words from the Apostle Paul. And what's happening is here is when we do communion, we come in, we just partake of the elements. Most people believe at this time they would actually have these meals they would call love feasts. And they would gather together and have an actual meal and then partake in that meal at some point or following that meal in what we would consider the elements, the Lord's Supper. And so we don't do it that same way today. But again, this is what was happening there. And as this was happening, some people in the church had some money. Some people in the church did not because this is a culture full of people just like our culture. And so some people would come to that meal. They could bring no food. They didn't have a dish to pass. They had nothing. Other people would come in with all kinds of food. And then what would happen is they would just completely overindulge on that food, leaving the poorer people off to the side, not giving them anything to eat. And then they would actually consume wine unto drunkenness, completely making a shame and a debacle of the whole meal, and then expect to go together and partake in the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, what are you, what are you doing? I actually love this. says, what? Like, wh- what is going on here? He says, you have homes, right? If you want to do that, go eat at home. If you're going to act that way, don't even, here's what he's saying, don't even come to church. He's saying, I'd rather you just stay home and avoid coming to church altogether than come and do what you're doing because you're shaming Christ. You're you're causing divisions among the ones that can't afford to bring food. You're, You're isolating them. You're actually causing division in the church. He says, what should I say unto you about these things? Do I praise you in this? And again, you hear that sarcasm. You think this is good? He says, I praise you not. You see, again, if if the goal of communion is to express our faith continually and cement our fellowship and unity in Christ, the church at Corinth had completely missed the understanding of that. They completely missed the whole point of communion. Communion is a picture of the unity of the church as a family. And this is why Paul spent so much time speaking about the misuse of communion to the Corinthian church. Because it was actually becoming a time of disunity and discouragement for the church. Not a coming together, but a dividing apart. And Paul's rebuking them for that. He's calling them to that because it was not what it was intended to be. Now, why is that such a big deal? Why does it matter so much if there be some divisions in the church? Well, because fellowship in the body of Christ is another key understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ. You see, fellowship in the church is vital to our personal Christian health. It is more than friendship around common interests. We all have friends that enjoy common interests, sports, hobbies, activities, whatever it might be. Christian fellowship is not as surface as that. It involves some of that, but it's deeper than that. It's not just gathering around a common interest. It is a bond 
in Christ, a common salvation that unites us together as brothers and sisters in Christ, not just friends with like and shared interest. This is why what Julie and Lynn shared is so amazing. That's what grief share is really an extension of. Now, it's, it's got a name on it. It's a specific ministry for people battling with a specific thing and struggling with specific things. But really, that picture of people coming together, sharing their hurts and their struggles and their pains, and someone else saying, this is how God walked me through that. This is how God brought people into my life to walk with me through that. Let me just encourage you with that. Here's some word. Let me pray for you. That's the church. That's what the fellowship of the church is supposed to be. But the problem is that a lot of us come to church and we keep it so surface and we keep it so kind of put up that image that we never allow people to really know what's going on. So they can't really effectively pray for us, which means they can't effectively encourage us. We're still discouraged and defeated. And then we never come back to church because we feel like it doesn't help. Amen. But man, if we would realize, and I'm not saying you come up on the stage and you go, hey, here's everything. I'll be real. I don't want to know that, okay? <laughs> but what I'm, it's not like we're transparent. We tell everybody everything and everything. No, no, no. It means we admit that we're flawed human beings who have struggles and pains and hurts. Not every day is a great day. Now, I know what you're saying. Oh, but, but in the Lord, yes, of course, in the Lord. Rejoice in the, in the Lord today because it's a day that he has made and we'll rejoice in it. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I agree with that. But when we don't feel that way because our emotions are deceiving us and we need that fellowship of other believers to just come alongside and say, I'm praying for you. They don't got to know everything you're going through. They just need to know maybe you're going through something. And then maybe there's one or, or two people that you are close to that you can share those intimate things with. But again, that's why Paul gets so upset about what he's seeing because this... What's modeled in communion is really what's happening throughout the whole church. It's just communion brought it to the surface. These divisions, these false teachings, they're already going on. But man, when communion would come, it was like the, the spotlight was put right on that. And so that's why he's using it as a way to say, this has got to change. Fellowship in the church is so much more than just, how you doing? Oh, great. How are you? Good. Now, sometimes that's all we have time for. I understand that. But it needs to be more than that because it's vital to our personal Christian health that we have those brothers and sisters in Christ. And communion is a great way to model that fellowship and that unity in Christ. That's why I try to mention when we pass the elements one to another, I want you to take a moment and think about, I'm, I'm, this is my brother and sister sitting next to me. This is my, my family members sitting next to me. We're one in Christ. They might look different than you. They might not have the same amount of money you have, the same gifts, the same talents, the same car, same whatever. It doesn't matter. If they're in Christ, we're one. And we should be okay to encourage that and support each other in that. You see, again, communion has been practiced by the church since its founding and continues to bind us together in the memorial of what Christ did for us, dying on the cross and rising again. One way I could say it is this. Baptism demonstrates our initial identification with Christ and his church. The Lord's Supper celebrates our continual identification with Christ and his church. So speaking to that, let's wrap up with this idea of discipleship. How does all of that, that demonstrating of a binding in Christ, how does that uh, allow us to communicate that abiding through discipleship? So we realize that we also demonstrate our abiding not only through the Lord's Supper and communion, but also through continued 
discipleship. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. If you're having a hard time finding it, find 1 Peter. That'll help you a lot in the process. If you are looking for it, 2 Peter chapter 3, it's page 858 in the Bibles there, if you're using one of the church Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, popular passage. But it's one that I really think summarizes this idea of discipleship. The Lord was humbling me there. I almost read 1 Peter chapter 3. I glanced down. I was like, that's not what I'm looking to read. Thank you, Lord. Okay, so 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. We're talking about continued discipleship. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and then that moves into continued discipleship. Look with me at verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord, Jesus, or Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That's, by the way, if you want to know what's my purpose as a Christian, the end of that verse. To give glory to him both now and forever. And how do we do that? How do we give glory to him now and forever? Well, that's answered in the first part of the verse, verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, when we're talking about continued discipleship, we're talking about the reality that we are being discipled. As a follower of Christ, no matter your age, years you've been saved, no matter your background, unchurched, churched, Christian parents, non-Christian parents, if you know Christ right now, you are being discipled. The Christian life is one of constant and consistent growing and learning. This takes place in our personal devotionals. This is time we spend in the word. This takes place in our time of prayer. This takes place in our church gatherings. This takes place when we hear the preaching and teaching of God's word, whether it be from me, Pastor Greg, a different teacher, something online. If you like a, a certain pastor, by the way, I, I'm never going to sound like Charles Stanley. I'm never going to sound like those guys. I don't want to sound like those guys because God made those guys to be those guys and me to be me. And he made you to be you. So don't try to be anyone else. But whatever it is, however you're consuming the word of God, right? We're hearing it all different ways. As we're consuming the word of God, we're being discipled. It's a constant life of learning and growing. And I don't know about you, but I've met Christians that thought they arrived. I got this whole book figured out. The minute we start thinking that way, we actually become stagnant in our growth and will actually decline in our walk with Christ. It doesn't matter how many years you've been saved. You don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. We're all learning and growing. And it's important we understand that that's how we live a life that glorifies God. By continually saying, no, I need to go deeper into grace. I need to understand more of who Jesus is. I need to live in a more practical way the beliefs that I hold to. And as we're doing those things and pursuing those things, we're finding more and more ways to glorify him. John Gill, in his commentary, says this, and I love this about how he describes this verse in Second Peter. Talking about the idea of growing in the knowledge, he says this, of his person, meaning Christ, his office, his prophet, priest, and king, how is that interacting, and grace. So we're growing in his person, office, and grace. I'm going to read quite a bit of this quote, so bear with me. Then, which nothing, or, sorry, let me read that, of his person, office, and grace, that which nothing is more valuable and is to be preferred to everything. 
It is the principal thing in grace and is the beginning of and pledge of eternal life and will issue in it for an increase of which and a growth in it, the word and ordinances are designed. I love this part. And nothing can be a greater security against error than an experimental, experimental growing knowledge of Christ. I love that phrase right there. He points out that a striving to grow in the knowledge of Christ will keep us from error and false teaching. How will we know to discern the word of God and divide the word between what is true and what is not true? Just grow in the knowledge of Christ, in his grace, in his person, in his office, who he reveals himself to be in the word. And as you're growing in grace, when you hear false teaching, you will be able to divide and say, that is error and this is truth. Not that we've arrived at some level of knowledge, but it's the spirit of God revealing these things to us as we grow in Christ. The closer we draw to Christ through his word, the clearer the schemes of the enemy will become and the knowledge of the grace, strength, and wisdom to stand against those schemes. So we are all being discipled. There is no one here in person or online that is not as a follower of Christ being discipled. Whether we choose to submit to that or walk away from it is up to us, but it's there. We need to be discipled. But along with being discipled, we are discipling. So as followers of Christ, we're being discipled and we're discipling others. Second Timothy 2.2, I'm just going to reference it for time's sake. You can jot it down for notes. Paul tells Timothy to teach faithful men who will teach others also. Hey, Timothy, as a pastor, I want you to teach faithful men. This means teach other people, them. We see throughout the New Testament a call to teach others the truth of God's word. This starts at home and moves out into the church and community. We are being discipled and we are discipling. So just a challenge here to the husbands and, and grandfathers in the room, as to the dads in the room. God has placed within your home those that you are blessed to walk with in their faith and encourage in the Lord. As, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, if you have an area of influence in your children's life and in your grandchildren's life, in your spouse's life, then God has placed them in that area of influence so that you as a Christian man, as a follower of Christ, can impact them and disciple them for the cause of Christ. So a question, you don't need to raise your hand, but just to, and I'm not saying women can't disciple their children and encourage their husbands. Of course, I believe this, but I also believe that that in our church culture today, in America today, we have a desperate need for Christian men to be godly men and just disciple their children, disciple their wives. And I, I want to say this real quick. I'm going to dive into this a little bit tonight in our devotion. I am so thankful for the men of our church that I can look to as an example of what it means to lead their families, to lead their wives, to lead their children, to serve in the church. We have amazing men in this church that love the Lord and are men for God, and I love that. But as a follower of Christ myself, as a husband and a, a father, I know I need to be constantly reminded that it's my obligation, my joyful and blessed responsibility to disciple my children. I heard one speaker say this. He told... These pastors, he said, when you get to your church this weekend, ask all the men. Now, he wanted them to raise their hand, but I'm not going to do that. 
He was talking to these pastors and a bunch of evangelical pastors, various denominations, and he said, I want you to ask your men, how many of you are practically daily discipling your families for Christ? That means you're somehow leading them and understanding the word. You're praying for them or with them. You're a, a gracious example to your wife. You're extending grace. You're ministering. You're showing what it is to be a follower of Christ practically and not afraid to engage in those areas in their lives. Then he said, you'll be surprised how many men in most churches will just kind of look around like, oh, what's he talking about? And then he said, okay, pastor, then do this. If no man wants to do that, then tell them starting effective immediately, we're removing all children's ministries, women's ministries, any and all discipleship ministries that involve women and children. Junior church is gone. All of it's gone. And he said, watch how fast those men will vote that pastor out. Because here's what's happened in church culture. Some men have convinced themselves that I don't need to disciple my children. That's Julie Johnson's job. I don't need to disciple my children. That's Word of Life's job. I don't need to disciple my wife. That's the women's ministry job. I don't need to disciple my family. That's the church's job. That's Pastor John's job. No, no, no. Christian, we're coming alongside you. I'm all for these ministries. I praise God for what he's doing in our children's ministries and our men's and women's ministries. But those are not taking the place of the role of the husband to say, I'm going to lead my wife. The father that says, I'm going to lead my children. The grandfather that says, I'm going to lead my grandchildren. It is supplemental. It is just coming alongside. And so as a challenge to me and a challenge to the men here today, are we as men of God, and to be honest, I think we could probably do a series on what it means to be a man of God. Because our culture today doesn't know what it means to be a man, number one. But number two, they're struggling with what it means to be a man of God. I can give you a hint. Playing video games all day is not being a man of God. Don't get me started. Right here, the Holy Spirit's like, neither's watching sports all day. Got it, Lord. Got it. Appreciate that. Check. But as we talk about discipleship, I want to give you quickly, and I know I say quickly, but we're out of time. Quickly, it's in your notes. I'm going to give you just a couple ideas of how you can practically help someone else in their walk with Christ. Because this isn't just for men and their families. This is for all followers of Christ. We're all called to disciple whoever God has placed in our life or drawn into our life. So discipleship takes place when we connect with other believers to help them in their walk with Christ. That's it. Discipleship is simply me connecting with another believer to help them in their walk with Christ. Whatever I can do to do that. Obviously, I encourage men to disciple with men, women to disciple with women. Um, I don't care what you tell me. Any other way is a bad idea. There's zero excuse for a man to be involved in a consistent, long-term discipleship relationship with a woman. Unless that woman is his wife. Okay, so I'm just saying it's practical knowledge, biblical wisdom, but also practically, it's just not smart. So when I say all this, I'm talking about a man with a man working with a man one-on-one -on -one, and then a lady maybe working with a lady one-on-one. -on -one. That's what we're talking about. So some simple things. First of all, keep it simple. And this is in your notes there. Again, if you want to copy this, I'll give it to you. Keep it simple. When you're meeting with someone for discipleship, stay focused on the why of discipleship when frustration arises. When people want to not show up to the discipleship time or they just kind of are floundering or whatever, don't get frustrated at a person. Remember the why. And what's the why? That they would come to know the gospel if they don't know it and grow in the gospel. So that's my goal. So I'm going to be gracious and patient. Prayer is crucial. Keep it simple and prayer is crucial. You pray for and with one another. For and with one another. Be intentional. 
have a clear purpose in why you're meeting with this person. It's not just social. It's part of that. But it's a deeper purpose of helping them to grow in Christ. So there's an intention. Focus on scripture and prayer. So you want to encourage people to dive into the word for themselves. Don't do it all for them. Help them to understand what is this passage saying and what am I going to do about it? And then another just a key idea. These are not exhaustive. Realize that discipleship is simply doing life together. Real discipleship are just relationships with other believers, helping them to grow in Christ, which means being real before them and how you're growing with Christ, how you're walking with Christ. It's not about producing another you. It's about helping someone to be like Jesus. And so we are built to abide. Our abiding in Christ is demonstrated in and through baptism and the Lord's Supper, as well as continued discipleship. So a couple questions to close with. Are you allowing your abiding relationship in Christ to overflow into the life of another man or woman? Are you actively praying for God to bring someone into your life that can disciple you and that you can disciple in their faith? If not, why not? Is it fear? I don't know enough of the Bible. Well, the Bible says just know him and you can begin walking with someone and encouraging someone in their faith. Don't let the enemy or your flesh make you think you can't disciple someone. It is simply living your abiding in Christ, imperfections and all, out before someone else and just being real to say, this is who Jesus is and this is who I desire to be in Christ. And so let's pray. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are and the praise band is going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. And as they come and you begin to pray there where you are, would you just begin to pray and ask the Lord to lead you and guide you through all of this that we've talked about this morning. That if you may be sitting here today as a follower of Christ or watching online, you would know that you have not followed the Lord in believer's baptism. Maybe you would make that decision today to say, Lord, I need to be baptized as a public profession of my faith. I need to take that step in my faith journey with you. We would love to talk to you more about that, help you in any way we can, answer any questions you have. But maybe you begin to pray there and say, Lord, I need to follow you in believer's baptism. I know you as my Savior. I've received you, but I need to be baptized. Maybe you're here today, Lord, and you would tell the Lord, Lord, I, I don't really have those deep abiding relationships in the church. I've been burned before. I've tried to build relationships and people are fake or they turn around and they just talk about me behind my back or there's different hurts that we all go through in relationships. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, Lord, help me to not allow those past hurts to affect present relationships that will definitely encourage me in Christ. There's always a risk when we build relationships with people who at their core are sinful. But the reward is so much greater than the risk. So help me, Lord, to forgive past hurts and to move into new relationships for your glory. And finally, Lord, help all of us to understand we're being discipled by you, by the working of your spirit, personal devotions, gathering with church, all these things. But also, Lord, we're called to disciple someone else in their walk to help them in Christ. So maybe somebody would come, Lord, and, and pray and say, Lord, give me that person. Help me to see that person that I can help them. Father, whatever you're doing, I pray that you would work in all of these things for your glory above all else. Thank you for the church, the family of Christ. May we glorify you today, responding in faith to what you're doing and what you desire to do. And again, Lord, thank you so much for the families of our church. But Lord, I want to thank you just as a husband, as a father. I want to thank you for the men of our church. 
that are a great example of what it means to walk with Christ. And so thank you for them. I pray you'd help all of us to step into that calling and do what you've called us to do for your glory. And so, Lord, again, we thank you for all this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we sing a song of invitation? Would you come and pray in whatever the Lord's doing? However you want to respond. You need to be saved and find Christ and know Christ. Maybe you'd want to come and talk. I'll be up front. Love to share more with you about that. Whatever God is doing, would you respond as we sing and worship?